Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number five of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I am your co-host, Matt Larson, and with me is... Cricket Lou. Seems, it sounds a little strange to say my own name like that. And just out of the blue. Yeah. <laughs> like I was lurking here on the line. We need to work on uh, work on our openings, maybe. I, I got some heat from uh, one of my colleagues for not having intro and... Do they call it outro, intro and outro music? Yeah, they do, especially as a musician, Matt. You should feel chastened and ashamed for, for not having uh, some lovely intro and outro music. Yeah, I suppose. But I like the minimalist aspect of just just having it be pure content, no frills <laughs> whatsoever. That's right. That's what our, our, our listeners have signed up for, right? And are we just going to keep... I guess. Are we just going to keep counting up as, uh, uh, the episode numbers? I, I think so. So someday we'll be at episode 374. Like, for example, that's what This American Life is at. I just listened to that. 374. Today, 374. That's amazing. So when, you, re- when you think about Ira the Glass, amount. if you're listening, congratulations. <laughs> when you think about the amount of work that goes into uh, producing This American Life, that that is really fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. And have you seen the TV show? I have. Yeah, I have. I saw... Um, the episode that began with the sort of inner city cowboys in uh, in Philadelphia, I think. The kids. Who, I don't think I've seen that one yet. I just Netflixed the first disc and I've seen the first three episodes. I think this was the first episode of this season, of the new season. Yeah, we'll have to check it out. Yeah, it was good. All right, well, our legions of, of loyal listeners are expecting us to talk about DNS, so we should probably do that. We should, yeah. All right, so we thought we'd do something slightly different in that uh, rather than go right into our mailbag and answer a question, uh, I had proposed to Cricket that we talk about terminology because we've been throwing these terms around now for four podcast episodes and just kind of assuming that everybody's on the same page with us. And I think of all of the different areas of internet technology and protocols, DNS suffers more than any for lack of standard agreed upon terms. Would you, would you agree with me on that one? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, people can eventually figure out what each other are talking about, but uh, it, it's not always easy at first if you're using a different, a different term than somebody else. So I, I thought we should just go through some terms and define them, and who knows, maybe you and I will even not agree on these terms. Yeah, we should we should probably mention that that even among people who have been doing DNS for a very very long time and I think that we're um, a part of that number uh, there is a certain amount of divergence in uh, in the terminology used. Okay. Well, so let me first start with uh, I think something let's start with the, the most simple which is server and resolver. And okay. the definition I like to use when I'm teaching DNS is that each of those things do a bunch of different roles, a bunch of different functions, but at a most basic level, resolvers send queries and servers answer queries. That's right. How does that grab you? That's right. And so uh, that has implications, though, for for uh, for servers, right? Because, uh, of course, servers, in order to process recursive queries, uh, both have to have to send queries of their own and have to send responses. Right. Well, I I have something to say about that when we get to get to that term. Okay. Well, um, I'll try not to jump. But why gun. don't we? So, <laughs> well, well, this is what we get for not rehearsing. So let's start with uh, <laughs> let's start with stub resolver. 
Okay. So uh, a stub resolver is uh, the part of the DNS system that resides on basically every every computer, right? And res is responsible for sending a query to a name server somewhere and uh, getting back a, a response, and then uh, we would say uh, unmarshalling that response into uh, a data structure that it then sends back to an application that's interested in in the answer. I agree with that completely. Um, I guess one of the things I like to say is the stubborn solver is the bridge between an application that needs DNS data or data from DNS, I should say, like, you know, what is the IP address of www.google.com uh, between the application and then the rest of the DNS infrastructure. Right, right. And it's, it's very important that stub resolvers uh, exist because otherwise you'd have to have uh, within every application that wanted to make use of, of DNS, you'd have to have the ability to, to put together and then tear apart DNS messages. And so instead, with stub resolvers, that intelligence just has to be in really in one piece of code, right? Right, which is usually, we should say, part of the operating system. Yeah, part of the operating system. Uh, in Unix-ish operating systems, it's usually part of a standard shared C library nowadays. Um, in Windows operating systems, we should mention it's actually... Uh, a little system service called the DNS client, which in fact does yes, caching of its own. Right. There's oh, so you oh, you raise an interesting point. So uh, in the in the good old days, stub resolvers uh, didn't do any caching. Mm -hmm. and basically, it's the it's the bind resolver, and that's another thing that people may not realize. That when everybody hears bind, they think of bind the name server, but. Mm -hmm. Uh, an equally important part of the bind software distribution is the bind stub resolver, which is the basis for the stub resolver on every version of Unix, Linux, anything like Unix that, that I'm aware of. I'm not aware of any operating system, any Unix derivative that started with anything different than the bind stub resolver. Right. They may have added more complex uh, resolvers. For example, right. Solaris has NSCD, which does its own caching and has its own configurability that uh, the bind resolver doesn't have, but they certainly started with bind, and, and probably there are some parts of NSCD that are based on bind. And then there's yellow pages, don't forget that, although I guess we can't that talk about dating yourself. <laughs> yep. So that would be an add-on, another uh, name resolution protocol that's uh, that Sun developed. Right. But right, so the, the, where I was headed with this was that stub resolvers traditionally have not had a cache. Uh, they simply have a, you know, they basically are uh, amnesiac. They they just every time they get a query from an application, or I guess I should say, every time they're asked asked by an application to perform a query, they just do it, um, and then they get the response back and send it back to the application, and then they forget about it, and that's that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Except for as you pointed out, the Windows uh, stub resolver does have a cache. Okay, so that's the stub resolver, and then I guess. Uh, so what I didn't say up front was that there are really two kinds of resolvers. There's the stub resolver, and do you want to talk about the next kind? Well, you should you should bring up uh, the next kind because I I think it's a term that you favor more than I do. Okay, I think you're right. So the the, the other term then would be an iterative resolver, and an iterative resolver is the the smarter older brother of the stub resolver. So stub resolvers are rather dim. All they know how to do is accept this request from an application, uh, formulate a DNS query, and then send it off to a name server to have it answered. And all they can cope with as a response is uh, either the answer to the question or an error message, and, and that's it. 
Right, and we should also probably mention that a stub resolver typically has a very limited uh, list of name servers that it can talk to, just a few. In the case of a bind resolver, it used to be uh, three different name servers that uh, it would communicate with, three or five or something like that, right? Right. Now, an iterative resolver, on the other hand, that is the part of the DNS infrastructure. I would argue it's the most complicated part, well, in the absence of DNSSEC anyway. Uh, you could make an argument that maybe a DNSSEC validator is more complicated. But but the iterative resolver is really a pretty complicated piece of software because it is the part of the DNS infrastructure that knows how to navigate the DNS namespace. It knows how to contact various authoritative servers and basically chase down the answer, chase down the answer to queries that it's asked by stub resolvers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a pretty, as you say, it's a pretty complex, pretty sophisticated piece of software that, you know, in, in the worst possible case, by by starting at the root name servers and following a series of referrals, can identify the set of authoritative name servers that uh, have the answer to the question, some arbitrary question asked uh, of our of our iterative resolver by some stub resolver, track that uh, down and and uh, get the answer back. Right. And one of the reasons it's so complicated is that that process is not always completely straightforward. It can reach, uh, if not a dead end, maybe, maybe sort of a, what should we say, uh, it has to put the first query on hold and maybe go resolve another query in order to satisfy the first query. So it's like pushing the first query on the stack, starting another query. Uh, as it tries to do that, it might have to stop that query to resolve another one. So, And, and the reason it would need to do this is that you know, let's say it encounters the name of a name server in an NS record that it doesn't have the address for. Well, just the name of a name server isn't enough to do the lookup, so it has to put that whatever query it's currently working on on hold, look up, then start a new query of its own to look up the name of the name server. And once it resolves that, you know, and in the process of resolving that, it might have to start yet another query. And that's one of the things that makes an iterative resolver so complicated. Right, right. And as you, as you, I, I think, alluded to earlier, there are all these error conditions as well, where uh, you, you send a query to a name server out there on the internet, you get an unexpected response of some kind that indicates that that name server is misconfigured, or maybe you get no response at all, and you have to have a way to recover from that. Right. And another problem with writing an iterative resolver is that so little of this is written down. Mm-hmm. There really is not a repository of knowledge written down anywhere that says, here are all the rules and best practices for writing an iterative resolver. You pretty much either have to study the source code of somebody else's or talk to somebody else who's written one or sit down and think about it a long, hard time and reinvent stuff from, from scratch. And and I'll tell you, a perfect example of this is uh, lame server caching, which we're going to talk about uh, later on in the in the podcast when we actually answer a question. All right. Well, my one complaint about iterative resolver as a term, and I, I've mentioned this to you before, is that there are a fair number of these uh, iterative res- resolvers that you would, uh, as you call them, that actually don't use iterative queries at all. Um, an, iterative, an iterative resolver is often the first name server that you talk to, right? Your stub resolver is configured to use that, that first uh, name server, but that name server in many cases uh, simply has a forwarder configured, and the forwarder is somewhere central within your enterprise network. And, uh, and of course, as we've probably said before, name servers that are configured to use forwarders send 
uh, only rec recursive queries, not iterative or non-recursive queries uh, to those forwarders. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, we, we sort of skipped over one of the things I wanted to say, which is that uh, the entity that stub resolvers send queries to is, strictly speaking, not an iterative resolver in isolation. Uh, if you stick to the definition that resolvers send queries and name servers answer queries, you couldn't have an iterative resolver really by itself because how would it receive instructions for what to query? It really has to be coupled with a name server. Mm -hmm. So the entity that you get when you combine a name server that, that answers queries and an iterative resolver that sends queries is a recursive name server. And that is probably the one term that there is the most disagreement on. And, and for the past several years, I have firmly called this thing a recursive name server, and I can I can be backed up by. Uh, actually, we we kind of we kind of went through some terminology arguments when we were editing the uh, latest iteration of the DNS Psych RFCs, uh, RFCs forty, thirty three, thirty four, and thirty five, and we realized that we would have to have a a really solid grasp of the terminology and have some definitions. And the, the RFCs actually start with a kind of a glossary of definitions saying, this is the terminology we're using. And uh, it, it does say recursive name server. So that's my, uh, that's my justification for, for calling it that. But you, what are some of the other names that you've heard people call this thing? Well, sometimes local name server. Uh, I've used that before. Um, caching name server? <clears throat> caching name server. Uh, so, some people uh, will occasionally call it a caching only name server, but of course that's not correct unless, in fact, it is not authoritative for any zones. Right, right. Well, so now now we're we're getting on to sort of the the, the next thing. But what else do we want to say about recursive name servers? Um, uh, so they're they're a, they're a name server. They're this iterative resolver, and then iterative resolvers absolutely have a cache. I'm not aware of any iterative resolver that does not have a cache. It would be pretty much useless without it. One of the strengths of of this. Uh, of an iterative resolver is that it can build on previous responses that it's received in order to uh, aid and speed up future queries. Right. I mean, you could imagine one of these uh, iterative resolvers painstakingly working its way way down to the bottom of uh, the internet's namespace to look up some, you know, some domain name that has 16 labels in it, and then promptly forgetting everything in between <laughs> and having to go through uh, that whole process of following referral after referral after referral to find its way back to where it was before. I'm not aware of anybody who has firm numbers on this, but uh, I, I think sort of in my gut that if suddenly all the iterative resolvers on the internet stopped caching, I think it would just completely melt things down. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it would be the end of DNS as we know it. Now, I do have a question for you about this whole recursive name server iter iterative resolver thing, because obviously uh, bind name servers can, can be both. Any, any recursive name server also has that iterative functionality. Actually, it's not, that's not quite true. I think in certain customer premises equipment, you might have a very primitive recursive name server that only has the ability to, to fire off forwarded queries to a forwarder somewhere. But, right, so that's more like your, term, like, like your, uh, like your forwarding name server scenario that you were talking about earlier. Right, right. But if you have a recursive name server that relies entirely on uh, a forwarder, is it still an iterative resolver or does it not have an iterative resolver? Or does it have one and it's not using it? I think it's that. I think it has one and it's not using it. I think you raised an interesting point, and this is a good distinction to draw, a customer premises equipment. Like, for example, the uh, the Apple 
airport extreme that I have, uh, I, I know that it acts as a DNS proxy. So all of the devices on my local LAN uh, send their DNS queries. So all the stub resolvers on my local LAN send their DNS queries to that box. You know, it's mm-hmm. 192.168.1.1. Of course, now I've given everyone oh my, God. my IP address. <laughs> yeah. You're under well, attack. A, a, a little RFC 1918 humor that only a small number of people will understand. Uh, hopefully but, a large percentage of those listening to the podcast. <laughs> yes. But anyway, uh, and, and so that, that box uh, I know is then doing nothing but taking that recursive query that was sent to it by one of my stub resolvers on one of my machines and just forwarding it as another recursive query to some name server at my ISP uh, and then getting, so there's a chain of two recursive queries in a row every time. So that's a device that I'm certain has no iterative resolver component to it. Nor nor any caching, right? Nor any caching. It just doesn't have that. Whereas if you think about a more feature-rich name server, like let's say a a bind name server or or unbound, it can operate, I would argue, in two modes. It can operate, if you don't have it configured to do forwarding, the iterative resolver does what it does. But if you turn on forwarding, and you operate it in a forward-only configuration where you, you always want it to be exclusively dependent on its forwarder, then I would argue you've got this iterative resolver that's just sitting there idle, not doing anything. Right, it's inactive. Yep. It's inactive because the, 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 the name server, well, yeah, I guess the name, the name server component, well, I guess it's almost like there's a stub resolver component of the recursive name server. This is where the terminology breaks down a little bit. <laughs> See, this is what I this is what I wanted. I wanted disagreement to introduce tension and drama into the podcast. <laughs> I don't I don't think there's that much tension and drama between the two of us over uh, over the nuances of of uh, DNS terminology. But you know, we could we could pretend maybe for the next one, maybe for authoritative name server. But I don't think yeah. we disagree over the definition of authoritative name server at all. No, I think that's I think that's easy. You want to take that one? Uh, well, an authoritative name server is one that has complete information about one or more zones in DNS, uh, and, it, and it has that complete information about one or more zones because it's configured either as a primary name server or as a secondary name server for that zone. So it either has a file or maybe a database that uh, it can read the entire description of that zone from, or in the case of a secondary name server, it gets all that information from another name server via a mechanism, usually uh, a mechanism called a, a zone transfer. So um, a name server that has this complete, comprehensive, current information about uh, a DNS zone is, re- is called authoritative for that zone. So an authoritative name server is just one that's authoritative for one or more zones. And one of the things I like to say about authoritative name servers is that there are no degrees of authority. You're, uh, a name server is either authoritative for a zone, which means you know the complete contents of the zone, or you're not. There's right. no in-between. Right. And, 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 and in particular, I think there's a misconception uh, with a lot of people that a primary name server for a zone is somehow more authoritative than a secondary name server f- for a zone. And that's not true. They're both authoritative name servers. Um, the only difference is where they get their data from. And, and to the rest of the world, you know, if I, for example, run the infoblocks.com authoritative name servers, the primary and all of the secondaries, I may know which one's primary and which ones are secondary, but the rest of the world probably has no idea, right? Absolutely. A zone transfer is just 
a nice replication mechanism that the DNS designers built into the protocol. I mean, think about it. If they hadn't done that and you wanted to have multiple authoritative servers for a zone, it would be up to you to get that zone data to all those different servers. You'd have to use some kind of file copy mechanism and, and everybody would invent their own system and it would be a mess. So instead, the designers realized, okay, we got to make it easier for people if we want them to do replication we'll have this concept of a zone transfer and you'll have a primary and then you'll have secondaries that'll automatically download from the primary and there you have it. But the thing to remember is that the data that's being downloaded is the same right. on the primary and on the secondaries. Yeah. Without that zone transfer mechanism, it would be like the world of tiny DNS, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> it would. Yet another yet another obscure reference <laughs> well, or, or not so obscure reference. We have to be good for something. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, I think that's more than enough terminology discussion for for one podcast episode. What do you think? I think that's I think that's good. I think we actually should answer uh, a question since it is the Ask Mister DNS podcast. Yes. Well, today's question comes to us from the Netherlands from Antoine Verschuren. And Antoine, I apologize if I've mangled either your first first name or your last name, but uh, uh, Antoine actually works for the uh, the .nl. Uh, registry, the, the registry, the TLD registry, top-level domain registry for the Netherlands. And he sent us a, a series of questions about lame delegations. We have quite an august international listenership, don't we, if we have, if we have uh, Antoine sending us, sending us uh, questions from the Netherlands. Yeah, I, I, people worldwide tune in to hear <laughs> Mr. DNS. Be a shortwave. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? I would love to broadcast this somehow. And just imagine people, you know, hunched over their radio sets, you know, trying to, to tune in. Do people still have crystal radios? You know, they try, they'd be <laughs> well, trying to pull the Mr. DNS podcast out of the ether. Walt built one at one point. I think he got a kit for his birthday or something. It never worked very well. But Well, so if we're going to talk about lame delegations, we probably should say what, what they are. Do you want to you take that one? Sure, sure. So uh, a lame delegation... Uh, occurs when a parent zone, let's say COM, for example, to use a, a, a zone near and dear to your heart, uh, has, contains delegation of a zone like, uh, say, my zone, nxdomain.com, to a set of authoritative name servers. Um, but some of that delegation may be lame if the name servers that nxdomain.com is delegated to are not, in fact, authoritative for nxdomain.com. So in other words, if a, a name server uh, were to follow the, the delegation and try to query one of those uh, name servers in the NS record for, say, www.nxdomain.com, that name server would say, huh, I don't know anything about nxdomain.com. Right, so the parent, the delegation in the parent zone says, this is a list of authoritative servers, but when you go check one of those authoritative servers, it says, huh, I'm not authoritative for that zone, and, and that delegation is lame. Right. Right. So Antoine says, why are lame delegations bad? Well, certainly they uh, lengthen name resolution time. If, if we take, if we go back to the nxdomain.com example, I think that there are, what, four authoritative name servers for nxdomain.com. And uh, if we imagine, say, that two of them were lame, then at least for the first query, when somebody was looking up uh, nxdomain.com, they'd probably have about a 50% chance of following delegation to one of these lame name servers. And if they did, then they'd have to back up and choose one of the other name servers. So 
uh, name resolution time is, is going to go up, right? Yeah, the mental image I have is a car driving down a dead-end alley and then having to back itself up and turn down another alley or something. Yeah, very good, very good. All right, so that's certainly increasing uh, resolution time. That's uh, that's the primary reason that they're bad. I agree with you. Can we think of any other reason that they're bad aside from that? Well, let me say that there's the aesthetic reason that they're bad, which is just this desire that the the information in the parent zone doing the delegation to the child zone be correct mm-hmm. and not stale or, or out of date somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of brings us to uh, to lame delegation caching, which, which you already uh, briefly mentioned before. There have been name servers uh, that don't remember that name servers are lame for uh, a particular zone. So in other words, our, our recursive name server or our iterative resolver, I guess, that's looking up something in nxdomain.com, uh, we count on it once it's followed, once it's driven down one of those blind alleys and found out that the name server at the other end is not, in fact, authoritative for nxdomain.com. We count on it to, re- to, to remember that and not try to query that name server again for something in nxdomain.com, at least for a certain amount of time, because it would just be wasting its time to do so. But in right, fact, driving down the blind alley over and over and over again, <laughs> right? In the hope that now all of a sudden, uh, you know, some some connecting road, some there was some through uh, through road at that point. Um, so we count on on name servers caching the uh, the fact of that lame delegation. But in the old days, certainly there were name servers that didn't cache that and would query a name server that was lame for his own repeatedly. Uh, not getting the the data they needed, but but never learning from it. Right. So to tie this back to my earlier comment, this is a perfect example of one of the things that a modern iterative resolver needs to do. And it's it might be one of those things that if you sat down with a blank sheet of paper, just read RFC 1034 and 1035, and then the jillion RFCs that update it, and you tried to amass all this knowledge of what do I need to do to write an iterative resolver, you might not come up with lame delegation caching on right. your first attempt. Right. Or even if you did, even if you if you thought, oh boy, you know, I really should remember that uh, this guy is lame for this zone, you might not think that that lame delegation cache shouldn't persist forever. Uh, because, you know, the, we assume that lame delegation is uh, just a temporary operational error. That We sure uh, hope so. Yeah, that sooner or later somebody's going to correct it. And that that after a while, after not trying that lame uh, name server for a certain amount of time, we should actually query it again. So we have this idea of a lame delegation time to live uh, that tells us how long before we actually will go back and see whether that name server is, in fact, still lame. But you might not think of that. That's, you know, that's yet another uh, improvement, enhancement over, over uh, you know, what you might naturally come up with. Yeah, so I would argue that in in a modern resolver, and so Bind, for example, has had lame delegation caching for forever. Well, okay, not forever. That's an exaggeration, but for years and years and years. I mean, that goes back to Bind 8. And do you think even Bind 4, 9, did that have it? It it did, I believe. And in fact, I remember remember the bug, the description of of the bug in Bind 4.8, uh, that was was fixed by this was was uh, called burning up the wires and we, we used to see this at HP where somebody had uh, the delegation incorrect for the reverse mapping zone 
And uh, another name server trying to do reverse mapping would, as they say, just burn up the wires, sending query after query after query to that lame name server and never learning that that name server uh, w was not the... Uh, you know, was was not in fact an authoritative name server for that reverse mapping zone, and it, it's actually somewhat compounded by the fact that sometimes the lame name server is the one that's responding the most quickly, the most quickly to you. So in those days, you were you, you were already using round trip time to lock on to the closest name server to you, the one that was responding the most quickly. But if it were lame, you would <laughs> and responding quickly to your queries, you'd you'd uh, just keep trying it over and over and over and never try any of the other name servers, which might not be lame. Yep, round trip time, yet another uh, invention that uh, I, I think we can attribute that to the folks who wrote the binded or resolver, but not written down anywhere in any standards document. I'm kind of on a rant about this this episode, I guess. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, that's a place where perhaps we ought to allow a, a certain amount of, of, of variability. Certainly round trip time, I think, over the years has tr proven to be a very, very robust server selection algorithm. Um, but you know, you probably don't want to mandate it. You know, you want you want to say you know, uh, server selection algorithms should take into account things like uh, you know reachability and uh, the amount of time that it takes a remote name server to respond to you, and so on. Exactly, I'm with you 100. percent But I think if you looked in uh, RFCs 1034, 1035, well, it would be 1035. I think it says something like, uh, at this point, you should choose the best server. I mean, there's literally one right. sentence that describes it. So my point is, let's have just a little more than one sentence. It not be prescriptive, but give examples of possible algorithms and possible uh, best practices. Yeah, exactly. To provide some guidance and to say, here are the, some of the things that you would probably want to take into account. Yeah. All right. So let's go to the next part of Antoine's question. And, and this is where things might get a little contentious. So he says, uh, here at uh, SIDN, which is the name of the company, that's the, the top-level domain registry for .nl, he says, here we do pre-delegation checks and don't allow registrations that are not delegated properly. So in other words, if somebody's delegation is, if they have a lame delegation, they won't accept the registration. And he continues, we consider this our administrative duty. And then he even quotes chapter and verse, RFC 1034, section 4.2.2. Mm, I wouldn't have known and, that. <laughs> I wouldn't have known that either. Uh, and he says, we get a lot of remarks saying other registries, and then he lists .com, .net, other GTLDs, so other generic top-level domains. Don't do that, so why should you? <laughs> and then he says, <laughs> then he says, he continues, please let us destroy the DNS if we like to. It's none of your business. Now, who who exactly runs CommonNet? <laughs> the registry for CommonNet. We should remind uh, those of our listeners who who might not be aware. Well, it's it's Verisign. Yes, yes, and and, and it has oh, many ahead. fine employees. Yes, it does. Yeah, and and, and former employees. That's also that's also true. We'll just we'll just leave this to the. This can be like an inside joke for those of our listeners can feel smug if they know you know what we're talking about. Right. Um, but then Antoine gets to the point, which is, why do the various registries have different policies regarding proper delegation? Can't the technicians get consensus? And and this is very true. Some of the top-level domain registries, um, so not only .nl, I know that .fr in France is very strict as well. Yes. They have very strict rules about what they will take and will not take. And you know, it's sort of like your domain must be this high in order to ride the roller coaster, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, whereas on the other hand, uh, for .com and .net, it has 
for as long as I've been aware, been the policy of uh, those registries to, to not do any checks whatsoever, to simply accept the list of name servers for the registration, put them in the zone, and, and that's that. So no, no technical checks. So we really have a philosophical difference here. And uh, I think Antoine is trying to, he's probably hoping we're going to agree with him. Uh, I don't, I don't know that I do. I'll let, I'll let you go first. What do you, what do you think about this? Well, I'm certainly very sympathetic to his viewpoint. I, I, I like, uh, the, the DNS infrastructure on the internet to work well. One of the, the few places where the registry has any leverage over a registrant, somebody who's registering a new domain name is at that sort of setup time. And so if you don't take advantage of it, then, you know, you've, you have uh, almost no, no chance at doing it later, especially in, in the, the VeriSign thin registry model, which we probably don't have time to explain, but where you don't have a direct relationship with the registrant. Um, but so, so I, I, I like it because I think that that helps ensure that, uh, that uh, everything is set up correctly. I know that uh, some of the European registries also uh, require that name servers be on on different uh, different networks for for redundancy's sake uh, at setup time. So there again, there's another uh, another thing that I, I believe that VeriSign does not check um, that you wouldn't really have an opportunity to check later on. Yeah, I, I agree with you on all that. Um, but so I, this is going to turn into point counterpoint, I guess. Uh, if you look at the scale that the uh, the .com and the .net registry, I mean, they're 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 run. They are separate agreements, but they're they're run um, on the same infrastructure more or less. Uh, you know, if you look at the scale that that registry operates at, uh, it would be very difficult to implement any kind of technical checks in any kind of a reasonable time period. I mean, we're talking about uh, you know thousands of of added domains uh, an hour in some cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but couldn't the registrar do it? I mean, couldn't it just be a requirement of registration in common net? I, I guess this is it's all sort of water under the bridge. But couldn't it have been one of the conditions for new registrations uh, within common net? Obviously, it isn't now. I suppose, in other words, push that uh, push that testing out to the registrar, and then have the registrar refuse the registration if it didn't pass the pass the checks yeah yeah i guess that's that's what i mean if if in the very very early days of common net someone had said we're going to have uh, the same kinds of of restrictions on registration that these other registries do although you know common net are so old that uh, that uh, you know their existence probably predates a lot of these cctlds existence um or in fact does not not probably does um, but but if early on someone had said we we should do these checks as well and had sort of delegated those checks to the to the registrars, it, it seems like it would have been possible. The registrars, um, you know, are are the ones who who actually maintain the relationship with the user. The user is filling out some sort of web-based form, generally uh, on the registrar's site. The registrar can can do that. In fact, in many cases, they're even using the registrar's name servers. Right. So I'll agree with you on all that. But I guess we're we're really what this really, what this argument comes down to for me is, um, I, I agree with you that yes, it's in a perfect world, it would be great if there were no lame delegations. But I get back to in a in the modern world that we live in, where we have the vast majority of deployed iterative resolvers do lame delegation caching. So once they encounter one of these things, you know they don't drive down the alley again for a while. In the environment that we're in today, what's the harm? 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I tend to agree with that. Also, and we haven't really talked about this, allowing what are initially lame delegations enables users, for example, to register domain names, well, first of all, on a speculative basis, we'll, we'll uh, uh, avoid the topic of, of how we feel about speculation and domain names, but it also allows you to go ahead and set up delegation and then set up your name servers at some later date. Right, so you don't have to have everything set up necessarily in in advance, and you know it's it's one thing if let's say we're adding a new delegation to the root zone, a new top level domain, uh, you probably want that TLD to be all set up and ready and have no lamb delegations before you bring a new TLD online because it's of the critical nature of it and it's so high in the DNS namespace, if you will. You know, it's something that a lot of people presumably are going to be using. On the other hand, if it's a second level domain, you know the 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 eighty 80 millionth and first domain in .com, you know, is it really important that there be no limb, limb delegations? I, I go back to what's the harm? I, I, I certainly agree from a technical perspective, from an aesthetic perspective, it would be ideal if there were no lame delegations. But when I weigh what the overall amount of work would be to check for them all versus what the harm is, or in my argument, what the harm is not in having them it just doesn't seem worth the trade-off to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's my the, position. And and the discussion is largely academic at this point because, of course, the the rules that govern common net and and uh, the fact that that that, uh, that is not checked for common net I mean, that, that's that's uh, it's all been decided. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's, it's going to change anytime soon. Yeah. So, um, what do you, what do you think? Have we uh, have we have we wrapped that one up? Well, I think that in, in true uh, in true tradition of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast, we've simply flogged the question to death. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we're we're becoming consistent over time. That's right. That's right. Well, I see that we're over the ideal podcast limit. We are. We are. So if you've stayed with us uh, through all thirty-eight and actually almost thirty-nine minutes now, thanks very much. Indeed. So this will give somebody a chance to like, they could get all the way to work and then like have a little bit left over for the drive home. That's right. I'm just assuming exactly. everyone has the half hour commute that I do. I, on a bad day, I do, I guess. All right. Well, do you want to take us out? Sure. Well, thanks for tuning in to uh, episode five of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. Just a reminder that we love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love your questions at mrdns at ask-mrdns.com. And we'll try to have another podcast out, actually another in-person podcast coming up, right? That's right. This one from the East Coast. That's right. Wow. <laughs> we're, we're Mr. DNS gets around. He, do he does indeed. And uh, anyway, thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. All right. Bye-bye.